Heavenly Father, we ask that your word would sustain us this morning so that we may continue to praise you and honour you and glorify your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're starting to come to the end of our series in the book of Micah. And Micah here is miserable at the beginning of chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verse 1, we read, What misery is mine, or woe, or alas, or oh, basically is what it says there in the Hebrew. What misery is mine? Now, why is Micah so sad? Well, the wicked are everywhere. You look at how he describes uh, the nation of Israel in verse 1, Micah chapter 7, verse 1, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. The godly have been swept from the land. He's going out to see anyone that is fruitful, but there is none that are fruitful in the land, none who worship God. The wicked are everywhere. And what is the result of a nation full of wicked people rather than people who honour God? Is it peace and prosperity that is known in the nation as people have turned away from the Lord and seeking their own benefit as they're no longer interested in worshipping God? What is the result? Is it lots of peace for the nation of Israel and lots of prosperity? No. What is the result? It's division everywhere. Division everywhere. What do we read in verse 2? All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. They're actually divided with one another to the point where they're shedding one another's blood and hunting each other down like with a net. And the rulers and judges are no better. Verse 3, both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire for the good of the people. No, it'd be for their, our own advantage that they conspire together. And it goes to the extent, the divisions in the land go to the extent of breaking down even households. What do we read in verse 5? Do not trust a neighbour, put no confidence in a friend, even with her who lies in your embrace. Be careful of your words. Can't trust a neighbour, can't trust a friend, And you can't even trust the person that you're sleeping with, the person who you share a bed with. You can't trust that person. You have to watch your words because division has come even in the bedroom. You think of that famous story in the Old Testament of Samson and Delilah and how Samson was betrayed by Delilah. And it goes to even children, not just to the one that you're sleeping with. We read in verse 6, For a son dishonours his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. You can't even trust your children. You can't trust a son. You can't trust a daughter. You can't trust a daughter-in-law. A wonderful image, which I started reading this morning in my quiet time, of the book of Ruth, and you see there the faithfulness of Ruth to Naomi, her mother-in-law. That's not pictured in Israel now. There's dissent. There's attacking one another. That institution upon which society, stable societies, is built upon, the home, the household, where people can trust one another, spouses can trust one another, children can trust parents, and parents can trust children. What has the wickedness of Israel brought? Division to even that most trusted of institutions. 
And what does faithful Micah do in response to all this? What does he do? Well, we read in verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. What does he do? He watches, he waits, and he prays. He wants deliverance. He wants salvation to be brought to him. Doesn't go about it by his own actions, though. He waits. He watches for his saviour. And he prays. He knows that God will hear him. That is what he does in response to the division that he sees throughout the land. And I think this is an important lesson for us to hear today as well, as we often feel that the godly have been swept from this land as well, that they've been swept away like a uh, sweeping the dust with a broom, and the Christians are in the minority. The true, faithful Christians, the ones who love the Lord, who don't just say that they are Christians, but the ones who really do love the Lord and live according to his ways, they're in the minority. And it's an important lesson for us to learn today because I think that we don't just feel that the Christians have been wiped away, we see the devastation that the ungodly have brought upon nations, and including even our own nation, Has our nation been given peace and prosperity as people have walked away from the Judeo-Christian values which we've inherited? Is there great peace and prosperity in our nation? No, we see what's described in Micah chapter 7 all around us as well. We see people fighting, not just with other nations, but with fellow Australians. We see rulers and judges conspiring against the people for their own benefit. We see neighbours and friends fighting with one another, neighbours dobbing in neighbours, friends backstabbing one another. They thought they were friends, but suddenly the other person turns on them. And even that most cherished, stable institution, which our society loved in the past and promoted in the past, the household, it has been significantly eroded even in my time and in the decades just before my time where spouses who used to be encouraged to stay together, to stay firm and not turn on each other, have been encouraged to leave one another with no-fault divorce introduced in our nation, and where marriage itself is minimised or even redefined, which I've seen in my time. And children are encouraged to despise their parents and even undergo great medical intervention do great damage to their bodies without even telling their parents. Children are encouraged not that they, they don't have to tell their parents about what is going on with them and between the, the counsellors at school. That parents are, have no right to know. And so we see children being encouraged to rise up against mothers and fathers. We look at Micah chapter 7. And we see that it is relevant for us today. It is very relevant for us today. As we see the ungodly becoming more and more swept away from the land, we see the division that comes when the wicked prosper. And Jesus quotes this passage to show how, as we are Christians in the land, we can expect even more division. We can expect even more division when it comes to the ungodly. Because, of course, the ungodly hate godly people. We've seen that again and again through the centuries and through the pages of the Bible, that ungodly people hate godly people, and so they become even more divided, even within the home. We saw that in Matthew chapter 10, that passage that was read for us before. Matthew chapter 10, reading from verse 34. Flip with me there now, where Jesus picks up on this passage and quotes it. He quotes from Micah chapter 7, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, we read, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth, to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus cuts a clear line as well. He cuts a clear line with a sword between the two kingdoms. It's two allegiances with two kings, two ways of life, and the ungodly hate to see people swearing allegiance to the king of kings. And so they become more hostile. They turn even on members of their own household. How extreme does this get? Well, I can give you examples from church history. One example is from uh, Mark Gabriel. There's a book that uh, Mark Gabriel uh, wrote called Islam and Terrorism, and he speaks about his conversion and the experience within his own family of his conversion. Mark Gabriel was a professor of Islam at one of the top Muslim universities in the world, in Egypt, and he speaks of his conversion in this book, Islam and Terrorism. He speaks of his conversion, firstly, to Christianity, and it happened uh, when he was given a Bible. Uh, he, of course, if you, if you read through his account, he, had, he was disillusioned with Islam, and he was given a Bible, and he took the book home and opened it at random. And he says, My eyes fell on Matthew 5:38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He says, my whole body began trembling. I'd studied the Quran my whole life. Not once did I find words as inspiring as these, where Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, and turn the other cheek. He says, I'd come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. I lost all track of time that night. It felt as if I was sitting on a cloud above a hill and in front of me was the greatest teacher in the universe telling me about the secrets of heaven and the heart of God. I could easily compare the Bible to what I'd learned from my years of studying the Quran and there was no doubt in my mind that I was finally encountering the true God. I was still reading in the early hours of the next day and by dawn I gave my heart to Jesus. And then he left the university, he'd left the university previous to this as a Muslim professor, and he was working in his father's business, and he says, I continued to work for my father and did not speak of my new faith. He sent me to South Africa in 1994 to explore business opportunities for him. While there, I spent three days with the Christian family from India. When we parted, they gave me a small cross on a necklace to wear. After a little more than a week, my father noticed the chain on my neck and became very upset because, according to Islamic culture, only women are allowed to wear jewellery around their necks. Why do you wear this chain, he demanded. I replied, Father, this is not a chain, this is a cross. It represents Jesus, who died on a cross like this for me, for you, and for everybody in the whole world. I receive Jesus as my God and Saviour, and I pray for you and for the rest of my family to also accept Jesus Christ as your Saviour. Here he is declaring to his family that he is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is his father's response? First, my father fainted right there in the street. On hearing that his son had converted to Christianity, he passed out. 
Some of my brothers rushed out to him, and my mother started crying in fear. I stayed with them as they bathed my father's face with water. When he came to, he was so upset he could hardly speak, but he pointed at me in a voice hoarse with rage. He cried out, your brother is a convert. I must kill him today. Wherever my father went, he carried a gun under his arm on a leather strap. He pulled out his gun and pointed it at me. I started running down the street, and as I dove around a corner, I heard the bullets whining past me. I kept running for my life. Jesus said that he came to bring a sword and that a son would dishonour his father and a father would dishonour his son. The divisions are extreme. The ungodly hate the godly. They do not promote peace. Now, we may not have had a father try to shoot us with a gun, but Christians all know hostility from unbelievers. All Christians have experienced some sort of hostility from unbelievers, some sort of division. Why? Because even the best of unbelievers are like a briar or a thorn hedge. That's what we see in verse 4 of Micah chapter 7. Look with me, Micah chapter 7, verse 4. The best of them, the best of the ungodly. What are they like? A briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. Even at their best, they are prickly people. They are prickly people. Aren't things prickly since you became a Christian? Aren't things prickly for you since you became a Christian? Prickly at work? Prickly next door with the neighbour as soon as they find out you're a Christian? Don't things get a little bit prickly? They may have been very friendly before, but as soon as they find out you're a Christian, don't things get prickly? And even in the home, the place where there is such love and care and compassion and kindness. If there are ungodly people in the home, and they learn that you're a Christian. Don't things get prickly? Haven't we all felt a piercing thorn from even the most cherished family member or friend? And when does the piercing particularly happen? Well, it's if we get too close to a point of difference, a point of difference. And isn't it the more strongly we hold to our point of difference? There are many things as Christians we're quite happy to let go. But there are some things with the ungodly that we are very strong about. And they are strong about as well. And it becomes more and more pointy as both sides dig in their heels. And so what do we do? What do we do as we're pierced by thorns, as we interact with prickly people? What are we to do? Are we to run away, avoid the prickly person, like you'd avoid a cactus plant? Or do we pierce back, prick them back as they have been piercing us, we pierce them back. Let's make the division clearer. Let's attack every sin we see in the ungodly person. Attack their anger, attack their sexual immorality, attack their theft and their lies and their gossip and their deceit and attack their unbelief. Tell them that what they're doing in rejecting Jesus Christ is wrong and they will pay for it. Is that what we do? No, what does Micah say? What does Micah do? What's the example that's given to us in Micah chapter 7, verse 7? He says, As for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. He doesn't run away, but he doesn't attack back. 
He waits and watches. He even is careful with his words. He instructs that to the, per- to the person in verse 5. He says, even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful with your words. Another way you could translate that is, seal your mouth. That's what the Holman translation has. Watch your words. Be very careful what you say, which means often keeping your mouth closed. And simply watch, wait, and pray. But you say, don't you understand, Joel? Doesn't God understand how painful the thorns are from unbelievers? How these prickly people, they really hurt? They may even be as painful as the thorns of what is known as the gimpy gimpy plant. I'd never heard of the gimpy gimpy plant until I was on holidays with my mother in Queensland. Tropical Queensland has tropical plants, and there's a plant in tropical Queensland on the Atherton Tablelands where my father comes from called the gimpy gimpy plant. And our government advises on one of its websites about the gimpy gimpy plant that it has possibly the most painful sting of any plant in Australia. The plant has broad oval or heart-shaped leaves and white or purple red fruit, all covered in tiny stinging hairs. These silicon hairs penetrate your skin and then break off. They're so tiny that often the skin will close over the hairs So sometimes once you've been stung, you can't remove the stinging hairs. They get in under the skin and you can't get them out. My mother touched one of these plants whilst we were at a tourist spot looking at a curtain fig tree. A gimpy, gimpy plant was there and its leaves were just over the rail where you walked. And she touched one. And she said that it was like It it just kept on going for hours. The pain just built. And she said, I just want to cut my hand off. I just want to cut my hand off. This is so painful. And the pain lasted for months afterwards. It got better with time. But she said, whenever you went from temperature extremes, so if you put your hand under warm or cold water, washing your hands, the pain would resurface. And you'd feel it again as these little hairs were still under the skin. Now, piercing from unbelievers, if you have to live with an unbelieving person, can't it be like the stings, the thorns of the gimpy, gimpy plant and get under our skin and sting for ages afterwards? They may not sting you every day, but some of the stings from six months ago, a year ago, still hurt. They still penetrate. And what does Micah say? Watch, wait, pray. Is that all I'm meant to do? as I'm getting stung, and as I feel the piercing of unbelievers from before? Why only wait and pray? Why only wait and pray? Well, what's the salvation that we want? Because that's what he's hoping for. He says in verse 7, I wait for God, my Saviour. He's waiting for his salvation. Now, what's the salvation we wait for when it comes to unbelievers pricking us, piercing us with their thorns, even the best of them hurting us? What is the salvation we wait for? What is the ultimate salvation we wait for? It's heaven, isn't it? That's the salvation that we hunger and crave for. Heaven. Why? Well, if we get rid of our neighbour, who's prickly over the the garden fence with us, what might happen? Another neighbour comes, who's even worse. 
Let's say we avoid our father who's constantly pricking us like a thorn. What might happen? Well, your child grows up and starts to pierce you. We can never escape. They're all around us, the unbelievers. And the best of them are like thorn bushes, like briars. So isn't heaven our only hope? Isn't heaven our only hope to escape them? We read in Psalm 27 when we opened the service this morning, Psalm 27 verse 10, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Even my father and mother may forsake me, but the Lord will receive me. And where will he receive me? Ultimately into my heavenly home, into paradise itself. And what can we do to get to heaven faster then? If that's what the salvation is that we're ultimately wanting, what can we do to speed up the arrival of Jesus Christ? Do good works? Pierce unbelievers back? No. Wait. Watch. Pray. Pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Yes. But there's nothing else we can do to hasten our removal or Christ's return when he takes us to heaven. This is why Micah says, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Because ultimately we can't speed up the salvation. We simply wait, watch, and pray for it. Why else do we watch, wait, and pray? Well, what's the best partial salvation we can hope for in this world? What's the best way that we can see that the briar is no longer going to be piercing us with its thorns? The family member, the friend, the next-door neighbour, the workmate at work. What's the best way for that to stop? Well, it's that the prickly person would experience the salvation of God as well. That the prickly person would experience the salvation of God. If we attack every sin that we see in an ungodly family member or friend or workmate, what's the best outcome from that that usually happens? It's usually that they just become sharper thorns. If you confront family members about their anger their immoral sex, their lies, their unbelief, if you make the points even clearer where you differ, they simply usually get sharper with you and hurt you more. How many family members have you poked back as they've poked you? And they've simply become harder towards Christ, not softer. So isn't conversion of the gimpy, gimpy plants that we interact with. The best way for stinging to stop. That they will no longer hurt us, but help us, because they too have become godly through Jesus Christ. And what can we do to ensure the salvation of a prickly person, that they will change? Nothing. It's only God who converts. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that anyone becomes a Christian. We can't do it. So what do we do? We watch, we wait, and we pray for the conversion of that person. Now, of course, we share the gospel. But I'm assuming if the person is prickly to you, you've already shared the gospel with that person. They already know 
that you've told them that they're a sinner and that they need Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. They already know that. Telling them again and again and again is simply going to make them more prickly. You've shared the gospel. What does Micah say to do? Watch, wait, and pray. And hopefully, you will get salvation from that prickly person because God in his mercy hears your prayer and brings about their conversion. So why do we wait, watch, and pray? Well, ultimately, because it's the only way to get the salvation that we want is in heaven. And for the conversion of that person, we can't do anything to affect it. Simply watch, wait, and pray. I'll give you another reason. I've given you two. I've got five all up. Reasons to watch, wait, and pray, as Micah suggests to do here. Third reason, why watch, wait, and pray? Couldn't it be that the piercing from the prickly person, your suffering from that person, is used by God to bring salvation to that person? Couldn't it be that that piercing from the prickly person is used by God to bring salvation? After all, what did the piercing of Jesus Christ by prickly people do for us prickly people? We were prickly people once. Even at the best of times, we were against God and his people. What did God do for us? He saved us by the piercing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ knows what it is to have thorns pressed into his brow. He had a crown of thorns pushed on his head. He had nails pierce his hands and his feet. And he had the wrath of God pierce his soul. And what did that do? It saved people. It saved people. It saved you and me if we trust in Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ do there as people were piercing him? What did he do? Isaiah tells us he did not open his mouth. What did he do? He watched. He waited. He prayed while he was on the cross. He didn't fight back. He could have. He had the power to do so. But no. He accepted the piercing. Why? For the salvation of prickly people like you and me. And so aren't we to take up our cross and walk in Christ's painful steps and say with Paul, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Couldn't it be that as we suffer, that the person who makes us suffer is drawn to Christ, as they see us watch, wait, and pray. As they see us watch, wait, and pray, can't it be that they are drawn to Jesus Christ? If you fight back, or you avoid that family member who's always prickling you with their thorns, who will stay in that person's life as a believer and witness to them? Who will be there to pray for them and be there when that one day comes along and they say, I want to know a little bit more about the Lord Jesus. I've seen how you take what I dish out and you don't speak back. There's something about this Jesus, isn't there? If you haven't been watching, waiting and praying, will you have that opportunity? And will there be an opportunity for God to use you to bring about the salvation of that person through the piercings that you've been experiencing, just like we walk in the steps of the Lord Jesus and he 
experience piercing so that we would be brought to salvation. Why else should we watch, wait and pray? Well, won't the suffering be for our glory? Won't the suffering be for our glory? As we encounter these people who hate us, who are our enemies and hurt us, and may not take out a gun and shoot at us, but it isn't to our glory if we endure such suffering from them. Don't we sing Watts' hymn about the Lord Jesus Christ's sufferings being his glory? See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? What is Christ's glory? The sufferings of Christ are part of his glory. The sufferings of prickly people opposing him, they are his glory. That crown of thorns upon his head, it was painful, but it's his glory now. Couldn't it be that your sufferings from prickly people, from those who oppose you because you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even from within your own household, and it's very, very painful like the pain of the gimpy, gimpy plant's thorns. Won't that be for your glory in the next world? And finally, what's another reason to watch and pray? We've seen that we watch and wait and pray because we're waiting for that salvation of heaven, which we can't speed up. We watch and wait and pray because we're hoping for the conversion of that person, which we can't speed up either. It's all by the wind moving where he chooses. We watch, wait and pray because we hope that God will use us as we suffer for the conversion of that person who is attacking us. We watch, wait and pray because we look forward to the glory that comes from enduring such suffering. What's the fifth reason to watch, wait and pray? Well, won't our adoptive father and elder brother and the Holy Spirit, won't they give us grace, joyous grace, even as we suffer even as we experience the divisions that come from the ungodly. Won't he give us grace? Paul, the Apostle Paul, he speaks in 2 Corinthians about having a thorn in his flesh. Now, we don't know what the thorn in his flesh was, but he knows what it is to have a thorn. Maybe some sort of physical ailment, maybe something spiritual. He knows what it is to have a thorn in his flesh. And he, what did he do? He watched, waited, and prayed. He asked God to take it away from him. And what did God reply? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. He didn't take the thorn away. God didn't take the thorn away. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And don't we sing of the sufficiency of God's grace? In Newton's hymn, we sing, Amazing Grace, and we sing, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. And grace, what will grace do? It's brought me this far. Grace will lead me home. Grace will be there to lead me home. Or do we sing this only in the sense of, if there's no prickly people on the way, if there's no cactus plants on the way home to glory, grace will lead me home. No, grace will lead us home past those cactus plants and over the top of them as they pierce you. Those prickly people in your lives, 
God's grace will be sufficient for you as you seek to go home to glory. So when the gimpy, gimpy plants of the world hurt us, get under our skin, and we can't get them out, what are we to do? We seal our lips, like Micah says. We watch and we wait and we pray to the God who will hear us. We pray to him and we pray for salvation for us. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray for the conversion of the gimpy, gimpy plant. We pray that God would even use us in our suffering so that they are converted. And we pray that God would give us glory as we suffer unjustly, even from family members. And we pray that God would give us grace to help us in our time of need and suffering. That's what we do as Christians when we experience the division of others coming upon us, the pain of those attacking us who are ungodly. But what about if you're still an unbeliever? What about if you're still an unbeliever? You still haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. You still don't consider yourself a Christian. Well, look at the godless world, is what I have to say to you. And don't you see that it's a prickly place? It's a prickly place, even the best of places. But you can look overseas and start to see those nations that are particularly ungodly. What's going on in those places? Division. Division all over the place. Top levels of society, right down to the household, right down to within the home. Division, division, division. Don't you see that you're going to go through life hurting others? being a prickly person even at best? Don't you see that? If you're an unbeliever? And don't you know what happens to briars and to thorns? Hebrews 6 verse 7 to 8 says, Hebrews 6 verse 7, Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. Land that drinks in rain falling on it and produces a fruitful crop receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, in the end, it will be burned. That's what happens to thorns and thistles. They're burned in the fires of hell for all eternity. Do you realise that's what's going to happen to you? If you continue to reject Christ, you're going to be a prickly person all through this world and then you're going to be cast into the fires of hell. If that is you this morning, I beg of you, trust in the piercings of the Lord Jesus Christ so many years ago. The piercings of the crown of thorns, the piercings of the nails driven into his limbs, piercing of his soul by the wrath of God. Trust that that happened to him for the forgiveness of your sins, that he was burnt at the cross so that you would not burn, so that you start to produce a crop that is useful and receive the blessing of God in this world and in the world to come. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we praise you as our suffering King. 
We praise you as the one who knows the piercings of wicked men all too well. We ask that you would forgive us for not standing firm when pierced and for often avoiding unbelievers and fighting back and simply making things worse. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us to share the gospel with unbelievers and then wait and watch and pray for salvation. Salvation for us. We pray even now, come Lord Jesus, come. And we pray, help us to pray for our enemies, that they would be converted and that there would no longer be a hindrance to us but a help. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to pray that you would use our pain to save our enemies, that we would remain in people's lives, even if they hurt us, so that we are still there for any opportunity that may come along, and we're still there to pray for that person, no matter how mean they are to us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes upon the glory that is to come, the glory that is to come for people like us who suffer for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, we do also ask that you would send much of your grace to us. We know that your word says your grace is sufficient. Lord, we pray that we would experience much of your grace. Send it to us to help us to endure the attacks of men upon us for being your people. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.